I feel like I personally see more mistakes made with those algorithms, with the machine learning algorithms than otherwise. And it, it actually makes me shake my head at the software that I'm using, whether it's for sake of argument, Facebook. And it's like, it's just, this stuff is just kind of weird, right? It's not even, <laughs> I think I made a mistake. Welcome to Humanizing Software, where we explore our ever evolving relationship with technology and its impact on our professional and personal lives hear incredible stories, and gain valuable insights from global industry leaders as we discuss their relationship with software and how it's developed over the course of their career. As technology continues to evolve and brings us closer together, it should enable people to do what they do best while we uncover what they do best with the help of technology. And now your host, Andrew Tall. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. And welcome to today's presentation from Tailwind Business Ventures on humanizing software, where we talk about a number of different topics, specifically around not only software's everyday interaction in our lives, but making sure that we're putting the humans back in the humanizing software side of the equation. We invite you to join us digitally, ask comments or questions as we're live today or after the fact, and visit our website at tailwindsw.com. Check out our channel on YouTube, where we have each of our previous 39 episodes that are available with a number of world leaders in IT, technology, and other different areas, such as Michael Ward, Angela Moran, Yin Young, Joanne Corum, and others, as they have expressed their thoughts and viewpoints. And we've covered a wide range of topics relating to not only their personal journeys, but also what they've been able to experience as we try and keep the people in the people-driven technology side of the equation. Today, I'm very, very pleased to have join us an individual that has a very established technology career with a number of years of experience of managing teams in very, very fast-paced environments with a host of different companies who has been able to bring a number of different innovative products and capabilities to market across mobile, web, and dedicated systems. Henrik, Markarian is joining us today from Logic's Federal Credit Union, started his career as a software engineer, working in a little bit of time in the video game industry, and climbed through the ranks to establish different production level teams with software, marketing technology, and most specifically, and recently, digital banking. He is leading the digital banking efforts with Logic's Federal Credit Union, located down in South, uh, Southern California, and I'm exceptionally excited to be able to have Henrik join us in today's conversation. Henrik, welcome to the call today. Thank you so much for the time. We certainly appreciate it. Good morning, and thank you for that warm welcome. Absolutely. I know we've had the opportunity to talk with a number of different folks, including friends of yours in the industry on some of our previous episodes. So excited to have you join us today and not only share a little bit about your journey and experience, but also a little bit about what you're doing with changing things software related and the digital banking experience for the folks at Logix Federal Credit Union. So to start off with, we always love to give our guests the opportunity to tell us a little bit about themselves and what has brought them to today. So, Henrik, the floor is yours. Terrific. Thank you. It's, it's always weird to kind of hear somebody else read a little bit about your background. I'm like, oh, OK, yes, that, that and, and that. OK, <laughs> so I came to the U.S. as an immigrant when I was a teenager 
And, you know, digital really wasn't a thing. It wasn't even a career at the time that I was going to school, just to kind of give you a sense and, and obviously date myself. Uh, you know, a computer course in my high school essentially was typing. <laughs> so, so, you know, that's, that's how old I am. But moving away from that, I got very, very interested in computers at an early age. I asked my father for a computer, again, very early in, in high school, fortunate enough to get one and then started playing with it. And then, you know, the first thing you do is you just play games, right? And whatever games you can get your hands on. And then little by little, I was like, well, this is kind of interesting. I don't want to just play them. I actually want to make them. I want to write them. I want to understand how computers work. So I continued down that path. And although I don't have a computer science degree, I have an electronics engineering degree. I really focused on, on computer science and programming. Did a lot of that at home. And, and when I got out of college, I got into video games of all things. It was an expanding field at the time, and it was a fantastic industry to be a part of. I started in a company where essentially it was a startup. It was like 15 people. And ultimately, when sort of their run ended, they had highs of, I don't know, six, 700 people in global offices and, and whatnot. So it was a fantastic ride and thoroughly enjoyed kind of that, that ride with video games. Then I transitioned into marketing technology, and that was really interesting. That's one of my other passions. I'm kind of a movies geek. I, I really love movies of, of all kinds, in particular uh, comedies. So I started working on marketing uh, campaigns for major motion pictures from a technological perspective, not the actual sort of the marketing angle, if you will. And then after that, and where I landed right now is, you know, starting with financial work in the finance sector. In particular, I was very interested in fintechs. I spoke with Logics Federal Credit Union, obviously not a fintech, a credit union, but love the culture, love the people and really love what they were doing on the digital front and saw a lot of opportunity there for you know, what I can bring to the table and what I can work with the folks at the credit union to make digital life much, much better for their membership. And that's where I've been for just about the last five years. Excellent. I've got several questions. And the most important one, of course, because there happens to be, I think, a certain age demographic that I'm hitting on a regular basis. And it's part of my age demographic here as well. I've got to know, and I'm sure folks are going to be wanting to ask, what was the first computer that you asked your dad for in high school? It was a Commodore 64. Yes. I actually was debating whether it was a Commodore 64 or a TRS-80. And I figured that you were going to go down the uh, Commodore 64 route. And yeah. for all of our younger folks that are out there, that just look it up. You can Google it and you'll understand. <laughs> it's the reason why we exist. And it's a reason why Web 2.0 and 3.0 and ultimately 4.0 will exist. Just all being a from the past when we were given these little keyboards to start typing. And by the way, I too went through my, my computer science class in high school was typing. It was literally just, here's, here's a keyboard. And it wasn't even a keyboard. It was an old-fashioned, old-school typewriter, which, again, puts the dating back in outdated that uh, how old I am. <laughs> so now you said that you immigrated here to the States. Where from? Tell us a little bit about the, your background, both education, family-wise. We'd love to hear a little bit more about that. So I immigrated from Iran. I was born and raised in Iran. I immigrated when I was 15, obviously, due to a lot of political turmoil in the country. Again, sort of history-wise for those that... <laughs> that recall, you know, what was happening there. And uh, like I said, I think I came here when I was 15 or 16 thereabouts and, and have been in the U.S. since. Got married here, have two kids here. They've, they've grown here. They've gone to college here. They're 
Uh, they're working adults at this point. So, you know, I, I look at it as one of those kind of feel-good immigrant stories, if you will. <laughs> and it is one, and I know we've had this conversation before. We both are in that stage of life where you've got two working adults and I've got two working adults and one that's working her way to being a working adult as she's finishing up school. So I think you're on the empty nester side, if I'm not mistaken. And we predominantly are with my youngest being a sophomore down at the University of Texas in San Antonio starting studying architecture. And then I've got a son in the Air Force across the world in South Korea and daughter up in Dallas with IBM. So just very crazy careers that are all, they're doing their adulting and everything else that's part and parcel of that. So I know that family has been something that we've talked about on several calls that we've had and the importance of that. Would love to understand not only from the your immigrant uh, the immigrant background story of coming from a tumultuous uh, situation into the States, but also the importance of your family as not only from your parents, but also from you as a father and a husband. Let's talk about the emphasis of family in terms of how that impacted your life both early on and uh, currently. I was absolutely one of the fortunate folks, myself and my family, that we were able to to get out, you know, as an entire family. Not everybody did. I, I know a lot of stories where folks were separated from each other for years, if not running on decades. That, as, a, as I'm sure you can imagine, has a, a devastating effect on, you know, the family unit. So we were very fortunate. Initially, language was a bit of a barrier, but again, fortunately, both my parents worked in a capacity where they spoke English in Iran. So, you know, easier than most for them to adapt. I was thinking about that recently, that what's it like to, you know, in your mid-40s, pick up and move to an entirely different country, new language, new laws, new culture, everything, and, you know, sort of pick up and go again, right? It's, it's quite, a, quite a thing. Which, which they did. So, so very thankful for that. And, and then, you know, those, those same sort of thoughts and, you know, work ethics really just flowed to me. You know, the education was very important to my parents. So really never a question of, you know, should I go to college or not? It was pretty much, okay, you're done with high school. You're, you know, next step is, you know, going to college. And, and again, I'm thankful for that. We did very much the same thing with our children. It was, you know, we supported them and, and their choices in college. And, you know, happy to say that they both sort of have landed in, in good career paths right now and, you know, moving, moving forward. And again, I kind of attribute it to the bond that was in place and that we helped to further nurture and grow. Uh, and not only from my family side, from my wife's family as well, which had really the same mentality and approach. Excellent. And, I, and I've seen that in our everyday interactions. We, for background, for the folks that are listening in, the team at Tailwind is very, very blessed to be working with Henrik and his team at Logix on some pretty significant digital banking initiatives, which we're going to talk a little bit about because it's all about the humanizing software side of the equation. And it's more importantly than that, it centers in on the relationship. That is one of the main things that I wanted to hit home with is you have always struck me as a family man of somebody that the, your your heritage, your culture, your background, the where you've come from, what you've been able to accomplish, what you're going to be able to accomplish has been part of your foundation and defines uh, quite a bit of who you are and the respect that you that I get from hearing from folks that you probably don't even know about that are in the industry is pretty unique and pretty cool. So keep on keeping on, I guess, is uh, my, my mention on that, Henrik, just relative to what you've been able to accomplish. And, and along those lines, you started off, and it's interesting, you asked your dad for a computer, he gave you the computer. 
we started kind of playing around with video games, guilty as charged from my side. It was kind of like, wow, you can do this here. Oh, that's kind of neat. Let's talk about that transition. You've done video gaming, you've done marketing technology, and now you're focusing in on something that wasn't even really a thing 10 years ago, digital banking. Because I really want to center in on that. But I also want to talk about this particular journey. You start off with this piece of hardware that people that can get are kind of like, well, this is kind of cool. This is neat. I can do some things with that. And that was 20, 30, 35, 40 years ago. Now we fast forward to 2022 and we've got these devices that we can wear on our arms that kind of uses a phone, but this little, my iPhone has more computing power than anything we could have imagined when we first started. And there's a lot that happened in between that. Would love to get your take, Henrik, on your various parts of the journey and how you developed your vision of software, of going from video game creation to marketing technology to now digital banking. What does that journey look like from your side? Yes. And like you said, it's probably 40 years. <laughs> I was being generous, especially on my side, kind of going on the lower end, but yeah, we, we, we uh, got to do what we got to do. So at the very beginning, it, for me, it started with, and again, you may remember this, but you know, obviously there used to be computer science magazines, right? And, and they had programs that you can actually type in. And the programs were basically just bytes. They were just like essentially sequence of hexadecimal numbers that would make the computer do something. And, and that was really the first thing. I was just like, well, what is this? How does this even work? I don't get it. You know, it's just like you're just putting in numbers in here. And, and how is it that then it turns around and does something? So that was the first curiosity. And then and then I started learning about it. I started learning, you know, assembly and then learning, you know, higher level languages like, like C and C++. And then the game programming was just kind of the opportunity at the right time, everything kind of lined up. I would say that the consistent thing for me from really all of those verticals was engagement. You know, how do we engage the person on the other side of it? It's very, very different if this is an in-person interaction, right? You know, a person walks up to a teller at a branch and has an interaction and oh, by the way, they do something on the, you know, they deposit a check or they make a transfer, you know, they do a wire or whatever, right? But there's absolutely this kind of this human interaction that goes on and there's an engagement there. That doesn't really obviously exist on the digital side, right? So uh, from video games to marketing to digital banking, now the question is, how do you engage? What is it that the software can do so that it doesn't seem sort of cold and sterile and, you know, gets what you need done? you know, as efficiently as possible, but then also, you, you know, if possible, does not put any roadblocks in your way. That's not always possible. And that's an interesting topic to talk about is that there, you know, sometimes we have roadblocks we can't get around, but if there are roadblocks that we can get around, what do we do? What do we do and how do we remove those roadblocks so that it's not even a thing in your mind? It feels about as sort of, you know, second nature as we can make it. And that's really has been you know, the consistent part of software for me from the very get-go is, is engagement. So I love the concept and we're going to dive deep on engagement because it's one of the key things. And I think as a number of institutions, predominantly financial institutions, are always trying to solve this, how do we make the customer journey, the customer experience better? And COVID obviously introduced or hastened the need for that in-person which is obviously and still as important as it ever has been, but in many cases couldn't occur. 
So engagement means different things across the board. And I go back to when I was, and I started off with a TRS-80 and one of my best friends, still one of my best friends, Carrie Bruce and I would be doing exactly what you were doing, Heinrich, which was code, 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 code. You're reading off of, you're looking at the magazine, code, 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 boom. And I still remember vividly to this day that the save option was not as prevalent as it needs to be. This auto save and the save to the cloud. There was no cloud. There was no save. And you could spend three or four hours type, 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 typing, and then be ready to execute. Something would go wrong and poof, everything just went away. And there was no record of it. Just it was like you wasted three or four hours. And I distinctly remember more than once or twice trying to think about how I wanted to translate and make my TRS-80 become like a Frisbee or a hammer, or something to just get rid of it, because I was so so frustrated. And to this day, I still, when I'm in the middle of cranking out some particular work, I'll be, wait a minute, have I saved this? Have I saved this? Again, just remembering back to back in the day when, when that would actually occur. So we were engaging in our own way, just having our own experience about learning, and not realizing that being able to type to make a cursor go across the screen or a game be created or some sort of mini program that would actually be run. Now you've got the capability literally on this phone. I can immediately understand where the weather is across the world, check on stocks, open up an app to do something creative, play any type of different game that I may have downloaded. There's a multitude of different options or as a lot of folks on the younger generation are regularly talking about, is snapping, TikToking, or doing some other type of social media, which is trying to define engagement again. And that is something that I think is incredibly important on a number of different fronts as you try and figure out at Logix, you guys want to engage, I'll say John or Jane Doe, your actual members. John and Jane are doing business with Logix because of some reason. And we've got a great comment from James here on Facebook that is mentioning specifically that um, Henrik and his team are phenomenal and a great example of the fact that it's not just business, but it is personal. And I think that speaks to a little bit of unlocking that magic box associated with what does it look like to make sure that John and Jane are happy with what you guys are doing. And how do you know that on a regular basis? So I would welcome your comment. And I know there was a lot to cover on that. (laughs) First and foremost, we have to do what you have launched our application to do, right? That goes without, without saying, right? If we are failing to do what it is that you're trying to do, all the bells and whistles in the world aren't going to help you, right? So let's take an example of something that, that a lot of folks do, right? They, they deposit checks with their smartphones these days, right? You know, e-deposit has been going on, I want to say a little bit close to 10, 12 years, something like that is, is when it became a thing. Although it has generally evolved from its first iteration, more or less, it's, you know, still stayed the same in terms of the steps that you need. Okay, take a picture of the front, take a picture of the back, tell us the amount and we'll process it and, and we'll do that. If you're failing in any of those steps, in, in the basic steps that you're trying to accomplish, then it doesn't matter how it looks. It doesn't matter how slick it is. It doesn't matter whether there's cool animations. 
you know, you've angered that member. So this goes a little bit to that roadblock issue that I was talking about before. So we have to be able to do the basics right. When we do that, the next aspect of it then becomes how else can you improve this experience, right? What can you do? And this is where we look at the UI UX of market leading applications to see what they're introducing. Swipes or pinch and zoom, right? Those have become very commonplace. Now they weren't the case really. It's just, can we make use of that? Can we put that somewhere? If it's your natural instinct to kind of just kind of swipe in order to move from screen to screen, then we should support it. We should put that in. And, and you know, although that's not a basic aspect of digital banking, you have learned it from these other applications that you're using, whether it's, you know, TikTok, whether it's Snapchat, whether it's Twitter, whether it's Facebook, whether it's Instagram, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? Name the kind of the big, big heavyweight apps in the market. And so we absolutely look at those market leading applications for UI UX. They have tons of research that they pour down that particular area. We can't compete with them. You know, these are behemoths of technology that are, you know, billion plus, nearly trillion plus companies in some cases that are pouring, you know, uh, tons of money down those particular paths. So we look at them, we look at them and we try to be fast followers and we try to take the best that they offer and bring it to our, to our members while keeping in mind, not losing sight of the key thing they're trying to do. If we ever lose sight of the key thing they're trying to do, we've lost our, our member. If they're upset that they can't deposit a check or they can't easily make a transfer, all the bells and whistles in the world aren't going to help you. You know, that member is going to be irate and they're going to call the contact center and let us know. And, and they're not shy. You know, when we make a mistake, they let us know. And our goal remains to kind of address those issues as fast as we can. If we've made a mistake, we've made a mistake. We're human. That happens. And then, again, keep doing the basics the right way and then add the bells and, bells and, add the bells and whistles wherever you can. And the other thing that, that for me in particular really matters are details. Details are big to me. You look at pretty much any digital banking application out there, and from a certain distance, honestly, they all do the same thing, right? It's, it's a list of your transactions. It's, you know, this is how you transfer from a to account, you, you know, certain things that are done a certain way and they all kind of do the same thing. Where the details matter are, again, is, is the UI UX doing what you expect it to do rather than what you think it should do, right? There's, there's two different things. So for us, we really pay attention to the details of, uh, as well. We, we may have releases that don't have any major new features, but really just address a lot of the little details that we've gotten feedback on. We're, we're very, very big on getting feedback from the membership, listening to the voice of the, the customer, and then acting on it. So there's several things that you mentioned in there. And one thing about getting the basics right is just it's table stakes to be able right. to get into the game. If John or Jane is a member of Logix and they want to go in to the app, they're going to want A, the app to work. I mean, literally, and there's been instances through authentication or recognition, facial recognition or whatever. And I know I've gotten frustrated with a couple of institutions that I use where for whatever reason, I'm using facial ID, uh, app, my Apple iPhone, and it takes longer or it says it's not working. And I don't know if it's a fail of the device, if it's a fail of me not looking the right direction, if it's the application not working, I don't know. All I know is that I've just created in it, or excuse me, what has been created for me, self-induced or not, is friction. 
friction to the process because the basics aren't working. I'm not able to look at the phone and then, hey, I don't want to look at my phone. I don't want to take extra time to make something happen. I need to do X. And if something's keeping me from doing X, I'm going to get frustrated or irritated or whatever because all I want to do is do X. And if it's typically involving something with money, there's a reason behind why I'm doing that. And the movement of money, whether I'm receiving or paying, is important. And if I'm not able to do something, it's preventing that flow of transactions to occur. And those basics, that lack of focus on getting the basics right, I can completely see where that can be a big issue. And then looking at the details of making sure that, and I find it interesting because I've got credit cards with a couple of different financial institutions. And I'm pretty adamant, and I've taught my kids this, that I'm pretty adamant about make sure you pay off your balances every month. Just not what you want to do is carry a balance on any credit card. And I noticed with two different banking applications, and they're two of the largest five banks in the country. With one of them, when I make a payment, I get the instantaneous zero balance. I know I've done something because I went from a balance of X to a balance of zero, and it was instantaneous. That shouldn't be rocket science. However, the other application, and again, this is a top five US-based bank, does not provide that same experience. I made a payment. It says I made a payment, but it's still showing the balance. I later, a day or so later, see the fact that it's now zeroed out. But it's an interesting, different dichotomy of experience between one, I get that satisfaction. The other, I'm like, it says I've made it. I've got the check mark. I'm good, but am I really good? And for me, it's an interest, small, very, very slight difference. But I'm curious to get your take because I know this is something that's very important for you guys at Logix. How do you deal with a situation like that of a subtle nuance of knowing what an Andrew Tull or a John or a Jane Doe might want and how different it may be from their expectations that they want. That is a great example. So notifications are an interesting interesting aspect, right? It's one of those things where, to your point, some people love them. They want to know sort of what is happening, you know, and then others that are like, hey, just really give me the super important stuff. I need. I don't need to be bothered with everything else. And then, you know, there's this segment that just doesn't want it at all. I I tend to be on the sort of on the extreme of the I want all the alerts side. So this becomes a, a very interesting dilemma that that we have when it comes to product design, which is, you know, one of the old ways of doing this is you say, well, you make a construction set in a, in a sense, right? And what I mean by a construction set is you simply create, here are all the alerts. You can just kind of choose whatever you want and, you know, go through and set it, set a limit to whatever you want when you have a deposit, set a limit for when you have a withdrawal, et cetera. And you can customize this to your heart's content, right? You can do that. That works for a certain segment of the population. There's another segment of the population that simply is like, oh, this is just way too overwhelming. You know, I don't want to have to go through all of these things. I don't need to tell you what I want. You should kind of sort of know what what I want and just deliver that to me. So it's an interesting dilemma when it comes to product design. This is which path do you go, right? Do you, you provide a construction set approach? Maybe you provide the construction set approach, but then you also give them sort of pre-built templates that says, you know, let me know everything, you know, give, give me kind of the important stuff, keep me out of it, sort of, you know, let them make that choice. And anytime we, we do anything like that, it makes for a complicated UI. It's 
just the simple act of putting this stuff together and, and running it through makes it a complicated UI, which again, kind of turns off a certain segment of the population. I'm going about it in a very roundabout way to tell you that I'm not sure there's a right or a wrong answer here. It sort of depends on the situation, how we approach it. You know, we, we look at the members sort of appetite for this stuff. How many members does it impact? And what's the best way we can provide that feature to the membership? I don't think it works for 100% of the folks. And that's kind of a losing proposition. I, it's very, very difficult to kind of design something that makes 100% of folks happy. But again, we, we look at kind of the specific situation and try to make the best call for that situation, both by looking at you know analytics from what the users are doing, looking at the marketplace to see if there are some innovative ways people are, are approaching things. And then, of course, listening to the voice of the uh, the customer, as I mentioned, you know, again, listen listen to the folks that are using it. They will tell you honestly, and you know, uh, sometimes you kind of have to read between the lines as to you know what what they're talking about. But bottom line is, you, you know, there's there's a wealth of information that we get from our contact center about how to improve our products. So so we really have our ear to the ground. Your original question of of notifications, but. The other thing that I should mention regarding that is I think the note that you have regarding showing that zero balance, right? And in particular, maybe it has a little animation or a little star or a little something that goes along with it, which you know brings to light this, this term. I'm sure everybody has heard gamification, right? That it's it's huge. People are are very happy about you know when you when you do this and, and when they see that, whether it's earning rewards on your credit card purchase whether it's balance, you know, bringing your balance. Gamification is something that we absolutely have discussed. We don't have it to the degree that we'd like in our, in our applications today, but it is something that we are looking at and we're, we're trying to do more and more of that. But again, not, not do it in a, in a sort of an overt way. I don't think people launch their banking apps to, you know, they're launching, they're, they're launching the app to do their banking business first. You know, you have these other aspects of it that make the experience more pleasant. That's what matters for us. So, so we're kind of approaching it in a cautious manner. So it's interesting because I think you've just hit a little bit of the heart of the matter, Henrik, with banking by its very nature tends to be very transactional in nature. I owe you 30 bucks that I perhaps we were out and you paid for something and because I didn't have a chance to and I needed to pay you back. There's a multitude of different options with which I can respond to and complete that transaction, giving you cash, wiring you money, writing you a check. Yes, there are still checks, believe it or not, in 2022, or using any one of the peer-to-peer or uh, easy money transactions like a Venmo or a PayPal or a Zelle or whatever that's associated with it. I know I've got most of those on my phone, but banking by its very nature tends to be, I'm either at its fundamental nature going to be sending or receiving money. I've got this bank account and I'm either going to have insies or I'm going to have outsies that are coming in as part of that. I definitely want to know, not obsessively, but consistently what's happening, not only with my bank accounts, but make sure that they are healthy, that the innies are better than the outies are on a regular basis and have the right type or level of notifications. You brought up notifications as being something important. I know, and my middle daughter, Lauren, shares this with me. We both have this 
probably slightly abnormal fixation on not having the little red icon buttons on our most commonly used applications, whether it's LinkedIn or Facebook or email or iMessage or whatever it is, having those is a call to attention. It's almost a call of arms of sorts. And there's this weighing in of information overflow where, wow, I'm just getting pinged left and right. And I literally, as we talked about in the green room right beforehand, I took off my watch because it was blowing up with notifications from my phone, from Slack and email and other different means for folks to try and communicate to me so that I could be present in the moment here. There's things that need to happen right now that I'm being notified on. Yet, how incredibly urgent must happen now are those And I'm curious because I want to bring the the conversation up a little bit. This is where I think the humanizing software side of the equation comes into play. There's so much that we can choose to have at our fingertips. What's good for me might not be good for you, Henrik, might not be good for John or Jane Doe. How do we leverage software to help us understand the choices that we've got and we maintain control rather than the software control us? Great question. We ask the user in in cases where it makes sense. I I know that there's one easy answer that, not easy, I would say the answer du jour, if you will, is, well, you know, you you let the software learn, right? There's probably a machine learning solution at the back end that looks at the analytics and then, you know, decides, okay, this, this is or is not happening. Or this, you know, this particular notification makes sense or it doesn't make sense. I tend to like the fact of leaving more of that control in the hands of the user. I feel like I personally see more mistakes made with those algorithms, with the machine learning algorithms than than otherwise. And it, it actually makes me shake my head at the software that I'm using, whether it's for sake of argument, Facebook, and it's like, it's just, this stuff is just kind of weird, right? It's not even... <laughs> I think I made a mistake. It was kind of funny. I, I, I was remembering this one, one instance where I think I looked at a video for a pool filter. That was probably two years ago. And just because I think at the time we had a problem with the pool. <laughs> so <laughs> to this day, I'm getting these videos of pool filters and I'm like, enough already. You know, like even when you tell them this is not, not interesting. So I think in those instances, you ask, like, you know, let's say we start with, super high touch notifications, right? You get them for everything. Well, what if the notifications, what if there's a just kind of an easy way for you to say, you know, you want to keep getting these yes, no, right? And and you can then set it up so that even, and I very much understand the note that you make about the red badges, right? I tend to be in the same boat. I tend to kind of like to clear those out, but I've also know several folks that have, you know, something like 50,000 plus emails you know, in red. And I, when I saw it, I was like, wow, I didn't realize that little red badge can go into 50,000 range. But, you know, <laughs> I didn't realize it could go into five digits, but sure enough, it did. And that and- does give me hives, by the way, when I see that. It literally <laughs> yeah. causes me to get into a nervous sweat. So please continue. Yeah. So again, ask ask the user. Ask the user. I think a, a lot of times we've gotten into this point with software where you're like, let the machine handle it. You know, we should know. We should we should be able to to kind of read the temperature of the room, if you will, and then and then make those decisions. And I'm like, why? So let the user decide. And and completely agree. I mean, obviously, the personalization, the humanization of software relates to letting the human be the one that ultimately is being able to make the call as to 
yes or no, swipe left, swipe right, don't swipe, just let me make the decisions as it pertains to that. You've mentioned a couple of times the some software that you guys learn from at Logix and software that you've had some good experiences with both personally and professionally. I would welcome your comments and feedback. What are some examples of whether it's a software platform, whether it's an app, doesn't matter, and whether it's personal or business, what would be a couple of examples of platforms or apps that you believe are, this is thumbs up, this is a five star, this is this is great. And oh, by the way, what are some others that you believe, wow, this is really, really challenging and I can't believe they're still doing it this way. From a personal perspective, I'm no different, I, I imagine, than most of your audience in that, you know, I'm on social channels, you know, there's a, there's a wide range of social apps out there from your Facebooks and Instagrams and Twitter and TikTok and Snapchat and, and the rest of it. Of that bunch, I tend to like Twitter's approach the best. The content, obviously, it depends, right? You, you're in control who you are following, right? So So I'm not really talking about you know, is there is there bad information? Is there misinformation, disinformation on Twitter? That that's really depends on on kind of who you're following. And I truly feel sorry for them trying to keep up with the, with the avalanche of stuff that's that's coming at them. A, a quick side note: back from the video games day, we used to have forums, and you know, we got kind of a firsthand look. And these forums are you're talking about tens of thousands, right? Whereas Twitter, you're talking hundreds of millions, right? Even in the tens of thousands, there were content that we were just kind of scratching our heads, going, "Geez, Louise, what are these guys doing? What are you know? It's like it's this. This just can't be <laughs> this place in society, in a civil society." And monitoring that stuff was incredibly difficult when you had thousands of users. Now take that and again make that into hundreds of millions of users, and it's just an incredible task. So content aside from an approach, I tend to like the Twitter approach. I'm able to follow the individuals that I like and their points of views that I like, and I hear directly directly from them. TikTok obviously is very, very popular with, with more of the younger generation, and, and it's hard to you know find any fault with that. The videos are hilarious in most cases, and and you know it's it's terrific. Things that I care less about, interestingly, when you mentioned notifications, LinkedIn is one that jumps out at me these days. And LinkedIn just will let me know, hey, you missed eight notifications. And none of those notifications have anything to do with me personally. They're just kind of like some company posted something. And I'm like, okay, that's, yes, I follow IBM. That doesn't mean that I'm you know interested in every post. And I've tried even kind of to, to, to play with their with their settings. Maybe I haven't just done it done it justice. I'm sure there's a way to do it. But nonetheless, I find that that they kind of gotten off the rails a little bit. Those are those are more from the personal perspective. Business perspective, collaboration software, I think, has taken major leaps, you know, in the last maybe five, 10 years. You know, with the introduction of Slack. And then, you know, essentially Microsoft Teams coming on board and, and doing all it can. So it, it really has allowed, and we're kind of, our two groups are kind of going through this right now. It really has allowed for distributed development of major initiatives so that, you know, half the team is in one time zone, another half is really literally across the world somewhere else. And then through this collaboration software, whether it's Slack, whether it's Team, whether it's Confluence and Jira or what have you, to, uh, to really do something that was not possible before. And for that reason, I am amazed at how much they've come forward and, you know, what still lays ahead and what we can all do with it so that, you know, you don't all have to be 
geographically in one area. We don't have to bring everybody in Los Angeles to do this. We can work with a distributed team that's literally across the world and be very, very effective and efficient in doing so. And, and for that reason, that those collaboration software really kind of have my respect. It's interesting. And you mentioned, uh, and by the way, I think I will be incredibly frightened using a couple of examples from your what you've shared today, is when you see a notification on LinkedIn about a pool filter, that's when I think we've crossed the chasm. <laughs> when you, you looked at something two years ago and you're seeing it in a completely different piece, that's when big data has obviously become uh, uh, too much. And that actually is something that I wanted to dive a little bit deeper in on was this whole availability of data because of opting in with various devices, because of the ability to capture so much different information on John or Jane Doe um, as a member in terms of when they're logging in, what they're clicking on, how long they're on a particular page, what they're doing, and specifically how long it's taking, uh, how long it's taking, metrics, 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 data, data, data. It exists everywhere. The challenge becomes, how does an organization, and you mentioned it with Twitter, you don't, the avalanche of data they have, you don't, you and I both don't want to go down that path of trying to segregate out or figure out what's good or bad content relative to a particular platform. Yet in the same vein with Logics, how are you guys kind of managing, maintaining, keeping the respect of privacy and security versus acceptability and get the basics doability right how do you how do you make that chasm be able to be crossed we're by the way logics is celebrating its 85th anniversary as a financial institution we've been around a long time and our mission statement is that we help members thrive and it's it's simple it's concise and it really guides a lot of our strategic decision making so when it comes to data you know, we look at it as we're stewards of, of our members' data. And, you know, we can't take advantage of that or use it in what we would consider an inappropriate fashion or just kind of overwhelmingly just kind of, you know, send offers. Or I know this word has been thrown around a lot when we talk about personalization. Do it in a creepy manner, right? Almost everybody you talk to will, will kind of tell you the same thing. We want personalization. We don't want to be creepy. Well, it's it's tough to do. <laughs> What may be creepy to one person may not be creepy to another, right? So, so first and foremost, how, what, where do you go? How do you define that? And may, maybe it's not so difficult, but nonetheless, again, you know, people have varying views of these things. I don't know if there's an absolute right or a wrong answer here, but what we do is we look at our, our mission statement and we, we kind of look at our decision making under that lens. Does this help our members thrive? Is what we're doing with the data, is our use of data, does it help our members thrive? And if the answer is yes, you know, then at least it passes that test. And then there's a whole set of other business sort of requirements and, and conditions that we that we take a look at. But that's where we start. It's an excellent point. You, you really kind of hit, hit the nail on the head with this, which is gathering the data is the easy part, right? <laughs> Even cataloging data to some part is the, you know, to some degree is the easy part. It's the questions, coming up with the questions you need to ask and then the business strategy around it that is really, really the difficult part of it. And I feel why that while the data gathering is you know, significantly ahead of that sort of the business decision-making, strategic decision-making aspect of it, it's because mostly the business, the, the data gathering is computerized. It's automated, right? To your point, you've you got these devices, they are feeding in tons of data into your databases and you're just collecting them. 
Whereas decision-making is, you know, at some level, it has to look at compliance and regulatory issues. Can we do this? Should we do this? Those kinds of questions come, come to view. And then just simply the manpower to execute it. Like, you know, you have a mountain of data and then a handful of sort of people that then can can kind of make the business decisions and go. So so there's an imbalance there. And, and I think those are some of the challenges of, of big data as, as we move forward. So it's interesting because from a Tailwind perspective, and I know that you know this as a number of our listeners both now and in the future know this as well, Tailwind, we do custom software development. And what does that mean? That means that from start to finish, we can provide a team of very qualified folks that can help out define the capabilities of what is the it that needs to be done and then build the it, deploy the it, and then check on and iterate on the it once it's been deployed. What's been a very significant, I don't want to say change, but it's become more and more important, more and more prevalent over the course of the last few years, whether it's COVID related, whether it's an advance because you need to get digital right, whether it's this emphasis on the customer journey, there's more and more of an emphasis on the front end side with the business analysts, the BAs, the folks, and you've mentioned a couple of times about getting the UI, the UX, the user experience, the user interaction, that component correct. Well, that doesn't start if you can't at least have the conversations and start asking the questions of what is the it that needs to be defined? We don't even want to think about what data needs to be collected yet. And then to your point about getting the basics right, if John or Jane just wants to do and check on an account balance, then John or Jane should be able to log in, go to that account, check balance, exit out. That's the journey. Right, right. Easy to say, not easy to do because John or Jane in checking their account balances, there might be other reasons, this second and third and fourth level of reasons behind why they're trying to check their balance, which then they will want to do, which then it almost becomes a need for some crazy level of intuitiveness for logics to be able to say, I know what's in John and Jane's head. We're going to allow them to check their account balances, but we also know that they need to do this and this and this, and we're going to be prepared for all of that because we've got data that tells us that that's what it needs to be. Well, that's personalization versus creepiness, as you just talked about. So we're doing that. We're doing it. Our Danny Summers, our guy that leads our global BA team, is just an absolute stud and does a great job of that. And it's still an area with which we need to continue to focus and grow to make sure we're asking those right type of questions. What are those questions from your side that are pertaining? And this gets back to, let's get the basics right. But what are some of those questions that need to be asked to help properly define the it of what needs to be built or deployed? The first thing that we do is, and and I know at some level may, may sound a little idiotic, it's very, very difficult, nearly impossible to design a product that's going to take 18 months to build right? Try to put together on paper a vision of a product that is 18, 24 months away, right? That's why software development has shifted dramatically from the waterfall methodology of, I'm going to define all the requirements that I know today. I'm going to put them down on paper, and then we're not going to talk to each other until 24 months later when I bring you the software, and you're going to tell me, oh my gosh, everything is wrong, (laughs) right? that they've adopted the development. So I think first and foremost is coming to that realization that 
things move so fast that it is very difficult to look at 24 months ahead and say, this is the experience that we want in 24 months. This is not to say that you can't do the transactional part of it, right? That's not what I'm talking about. To your point, the transaction part is, is straightforward. Okay, you want to make a transfer account to account from, account to, et cetera, amount and go. That's that's the transactional part of it. But the experience part of it is what I'm talking about. And that's where this agile development comes into play. I'll, I'll make a quick comparison here to me about my own thinking on, on software development and how that has changed. We used to compare software development, I think, to building a building, Right. You would pour the foundation, you would build a steel structure. Let's say you're building a 10-story tall building, right? You, you'd build a steel structure, then, you know, the outer walls, then the inner walls, then, you know, everything else that goes with it, right? Well, that was the way I think software was done. That's essentially the essence of, of a waterfall development methodology. With Agile, I feel like what the equivalent now is, is that you can build one floor at a time. Which, if you describe that to a you know to an architect or or to a civil engineer, they'd be like, "What are you talking about? That'll never work. We can't. You can't do that without the right foundation." That is not the case with software. That's why agile has taken over. That's why you know all major initiatives are being done in an agile manner, and that's why you know it, it is sort of has has kicked uh, this waterfall methodology out of the practice, really. So to me, that's the that's the answer to it, which is. Take smaller chunks. You can define those smaller chunks based on what you know. You see where there are shortcomings because, you know, I like to use this other example, which is, you know, we know what we don't know, but there's the unknown unknowns, right? The, the things we don't know, we don't know yet. Those things will come to light and you'll see them. And then you're able to, to address them right on the spot again in, within those sprints, within those, those particular, you know, agile deliveries. That's how we answer that question from our perspective is, is that approach. So we, of course, are an agile shop, as, as you well know, and it's, it's been um, we are a big, big fan of the two week sprints and the iterate, 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 because you can build a building one floor at a time and you can build it more effectively because you're going to learn from what you previously have understood what the requirements for that particular floor are going to be. But then they might change a little bit, which then impacts future construction, future builds, future vision of what that building is going to be. And we have more than once recused ourselves from continued conversations with a potential client or partner because they are insisting still, strangely enough, that Waterfall is the way to go. That's a podcast or a live cast in and of itself relative to that. But what we want to focus on is really on the humanizing software side. And my last question for you for today's conversation, Henrik, is really not just humanizing software, which is the title of our live cast, obviously, and something that I know you're living and breathing every day at Logix, but it's the subtext. It's the subtitle where we have this, these three words, people-driven tech. Three words. Sounds fairly straightforward. Yet those three words mean and have come up. I try and have this question just about on every other previous live cast that we've had. When I say people-driven tech, what does that mean to you? It means the world to me, actually. It, it means technology not for just the sake of technology, right? That's what it means. Because at some very sort of in-the-weeds level, you can argue that there is some technology that it's merely between systems, right? There are machines dealing with other machines and, you know, exchanging data, that doesn't move mountains. That's, that's to me, that, that's process, that's procedure. 
yes, it needs to be there, but that that is not what makes the difference of engagement. Again, going back to this very first topic that we talked about, in order to have that engagement, you need to be you need to have people in mind. Ultimately, the consumers are people. And, you know, we, we talk about this a lot at Logix, which is, you know, we have a fantastic member experience approach when it comes to folks going into branches, right? From, from the moment they walk in until the moment they walk out, we want to make sure that they have a great experience. And digitally for us, it's not replicating that experience. We can't, right? It's, it's, a, it's a completely different experience. But it's meeting the, the intent of that. We want the experience from them launching the app to getting out of the app. We want that experience to be great. So again, the consumer of that technology are, you know, the end user is our, is our member. It's a human. And so we need to target it and really just kind of uh, focus on that experience. To me, that's why it's, it's kind of, it's, it's people-driven technology makes, makes perfect sense. Really, it's a, it's a great tagline for, for humanizing software. So in essence, what I'm hearing is that whether it's getting the basics right, whether it's having the bells and whistles, but having the details of those bells and whistles right, keeping at the very heart, the very core of what it is that you're doing, making sure that people are literally driving that experience, that journey, that technology is very, very critical and key for what you guys are trying to accomplish. Uh, absolutely, absolutely. If we're if we're missing that, then people are just begrudgingly launching the app. <laughs> just do something because because they have to do it, and and you know, well, that's not a winning formula by by any stretch. Excellent. And what a fantastic spot to bring our live cast today to a close, Henrik. And I want to thank you for joining us so much today from sunny Southern California. I can assume that it's sunny California because I hear from Paulo all the time that it's always sunny in Southern California. So it is, it is today for sure. (laughs) I thank you for joining. And for those guests that are listening now or listening in sometime in the indeterminate future, we want to thank you for joining us. We want to thank you for being part of the conversation. We ask you to please join the conversation. Visit our website at tailwindsw.com. Listen to some of the previous episodes on our YouTube channel. Again, engage with us on LinkedIn or Facebook or whatever mechanism that you see fit. And Henrik, again, thank you for joining us today. We're excited about next week's episode where we have Anna Gibbs from Frontline Education to give us her thoughts on humanizing software. But as we close out for today, again, Henrik, a huge thank you. We are so blessed to have you as part of our lives and as part of our group that we're working with. And we want to wish everybody a very, very good morning, a good afternoon, and a good evening. Thank you, Andrew. Much appreciated. Thanks for joining us on another episode of Humanizing Software with Andrew Tall. Make sure you subscribe on YouTube or wherever you get your podcasts. See you next time.